Hello, and welcome to episode 49 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as usual, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Carl, as you may know, is the host of the 30 Love podcast as well, which is a regular podcast of discussions 30 minutes or shorter with various characters from around the tennis world. And just a couple days ago, he released a new episode with... Kevin Kravitz and Andy Meese, who were the champions at the of the doubles at the New York Open. So pretty cool to get that interview between the semifinals and finals. Everyone should check that out. Good good conversation to get a sense of the doubles world for some guys that you don't hear about in the news that much. And Carl, we're going to dig into the New York Open and the doubles specifically in just a minute. Um because of our interests and our focus over the last week, we're going to largely ignore the the bigger ticket tournaments from this week. And probably the, the biggest event of the last week was the women's premiere in Doha, where Simona Halep made a run to the final, but ultimately lost to Elise Mertens in the final, so for a pretty big result for her. And then the Rotterdam 500 event on the ATP side, uh, another exciting final between Gail Monfils and Stan Wawrinka. Monfils came out on top of that one as well. So... Uh, lots of good tennis. We're going to talk about the two ATP 250s, starting with the New York Open. Since, Carl, you are lucky enough to live within, what, like a three-hour commute of, of Uniondale? So Yeah, it's something like 15, 18 miles away, and <laughs> four trains, six buses, and 12 miles of walking. How long would it take you to bike? Uh, it would take me forever because my hands would fall off because it's really cold here. But if it were nice out, yeah, probably an hour and a half. But I don't know if there's a nice way to bike there. There's a lot of busy roads. Yeah, probably not. I used to try to walk between just from Astoria to Flushing for the U.S. Open, and that's half of it's pretty pleasant. The other half is just expressway hell. Um, but I'm guessing that's not what everyone tuned in for to the podcast to hear us talk about horrible outer borough commutes. Um, but Carl, I, I think we, we did an episode right after the New York Open last year, the inaugural event uh, on Long Island, and we talked a little bit about the event. Uh, you've gone two years in a row now, so so you've got a, a, a rare opportunity to see a, a 250 event being born. Do you think that it's taken any steps towards being a better tournament, being more embraced by the local population, any anything like that in 2019? Well, as usual, I look to doubles as a barometer. And the semifinal, I was there for the first semifinal, the, the one won by the German pair you referenced who were on the last episode of 30 Love. And they were signing autographs after the match for quite a while. And the final yesterday... I don't know, it seemed like there were a thousand people, maybe more, which is, I don't know, for a 250 level for doubles final, pretty good relative to some of the ones I've seen on tennis TV. And again, we're on court for a while, just had like a lot of a lot of fans who had really embraced this underdog team that had never made an ATP final before. And, you know, there were, there were, <laughs> there were a group of fans who followed them into the press area where they were giving a press conference after and waited for them outside and including some young women who seemed quite taken by this pair. So these, these are probably not the sort of indicators that directly affect the bottom line. And there were quite a few empty seats at a lot of the sessions, but 
I think doubles was was a good sign that people were were passionate about it. I don't know. The tournament did a lot of things well. Um, it was just like a very easy to navigate space. Um, there were seats where you could watch both courts at the same time. Uh, they had some good video features in between matches. Uh, the Coliseum itself is a very nice facility uh, with good good food, good bathrooms, just like a good experience generally. They had an expo last weekend where there were people from all around the tennis world, you know, showing off their wares. And uh, I, I hadn't actually seen an event quite like that before. It was a pretty cool way to quickly meet people doing all sorts of things like tennis tours and tennis mental game instruction and tennis gizmos and gadgets for, for making your on-court experience better. So uh, you could tell all the all the moves they're trying to make the 250 succeed. I don't know about the financials behind the scenes, but... I think they probably need to find a way to sell more seats. They're very focused, I think, in the marketing on the very top-ranked players, and that's risky. Kevin Anderson had to pull out just before. Um, you know, some of the big American names lost their first matches, and I, I heard people talking in the in the crowd and in the media room about like finding ways to market tennis more than tennis players as a way to build a stronger foundation. Yeah, that's really the million-dollar question for the whole sport. Um, yeah, so you mentioned you don't really know about the financials. I mean, it, did you, did it feel like this year was stronger than last year? Like just in terms of maybe, the audience and so on. Yeah, I was just thinking about it. Maybe marginally, it wasn't. It wasn't obvious that it was. I mean, one thing that this is such a a top-heavy sport in a lot of ways. Like so much of the prize money and attention go to the very best players and the very biggest names. And I've wondered that before from a tournament perspective, does it all come down to how you do the last weekend? Is that where you make all the money? And it would be nice to have a good Tuesday afternoon session, but realistically, it's about Saturday night. It's about the finals on Sundays. If it, if that is the case, I think this tournament did pretty well. Um, so even though you know visually I might sort of be averaging the images I have in my head of the seats through the whole week. In fact, it might just be, hey, did we get a lot of people in the stands for the for the singles final? Those were the expensive tickets. That's when people were paying attention. That's what I'm not sure about. Yeah, that is tough. And I hope that, that you're right in the theory that for these type of tournaments, it really comes down to the final weekend because, I mean, those of us who watch a lot of tennis TV and other kinds of, of streams, like it, it's almost to be expected that if you tune in to – Tuesday, Wednesday afternoon, or even evening sometimes, like you're looking at empty arenas. And I mean, that can be as true of like an established even 500 event like Rotterdam as it is of the 250s. But definitely the 250s or the equivalent WTA internationals, like you don't expect there to be a crowd unless you have a big name or maybe you are looking at the weekend. Um, and you mentioned already that the big names either didn't show in the case of Kevin Anderson or were knocked out early in many cases. Uh, some of those, well, at least one of those players, John Isner, Isner ended up as the top seed, right? With Anderson's withdrawal. Yep. So Isner was the top seed. He made it to the semis and played this outrageous, epic battle against Riley Opelka that, I think, according to someone on my on my Twitter mentions, it tied the record for most tiebreak points in a best-of-three match, um, 
which is believable since I think the second set went to 16-14 in the tiebreak and all three sets were decided by tiebreaks. So that meant Opelka won that match. Opelka went to the final. So we had this super underdog final between Riley Opelka and Braden Schnoor. And I want to talk about Schnoor in a uh, in a minute. But let's start with Opelka since he's our winner. I think we had this discussion a little bit after the Australian Open since Opelka was, was on everyone's radar having upset Isner back then as well. But having seen Opelka... Up close and personal, maybe you were in in the firing line and you were at risk of being hit by an, an errant first serve. Um, how would you compare these two, Carl? Do you, can can we just say Opelka is the next Isner and expect the same sort of career trajectory? Well, if we can, I mean that's a tr- tr- tremendous trajectory, and Opelka is also getting started in pro tennis younger. I mean Isner was in college at this age. I, they clearly have a ton in common, statistically, physically. You know, I was watching the match uh, with someone who knows knows Isner and knows tennis, and she initially thought Opelka was Isner and then was disgusted <laughs> when she, she realized that there's a second Isner. You can guess who this is. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think... It's also striking. They've now played seven sets in 2019, and they've all gone to tie breaks. Uh, they're they're so evenly matched right now that there it is also just tempting to to say they're the same player. Um, so I guess that makes me want to look for really small differences. I do find their service motions quite different. And Opelka's I, I have a terrible serve and terrible service motion. So what the hell do I know? Opelka's service motion looks like it shouldn't be as successful as Isner's doesn't look as easy, but I mean, 37% of his serves service points to Isner were aces 46% against Schnur. So, you know, it's clearly working incredibly well. I also was pretty impressed by the very few times he actually had to hit shots other than serves to win points. Um, I mean, it's a very small sample, and he did go and win the tournament, which he doesn't normally do, so this is probably the best of Opelka. But I remember there was one point in particular where uh, I think it was a big point in the last tiebreaker against Isner, where Isner was down a uh, mini break, which is like he basically lost. But he did have a look at a forehand on Opelka's serve, and the forehand bounced off the top of the net. So Opelka was running to his forehand side, but the ball ended up in the middle of the court. And he very comfortably switched to a backhand and hit like an inside out winner right in the corner, which was a really bold shot to go for in that moment. Um, there were a couple of other times that his backhand impressed me in a way that Isner's pretty much never has. So again, small sample. I'd rather see the match charting project data than trust my own memory of it. But uh, maybe he has the potential to even exceed Isner, which would be something because Isner has reached number eight in the world. Yeah. <clears throat> It's um, you're right to point out that Isner has uh, has climbed so high and maybe a little better than his his skills would would suggest that he would. Um, it's also interesting to think about like like you say the age difference because Isner was a very late bloomer since he. I mean, I'm not sure whether that was right to say a late bloomer, but he was he was late arriving on tour. I mean, he was playing very good tennis at university, but uh, but started late on tour. Opelka is younger now than Isner was when he first started regularly playing on the ATP tour, I think. 
So, so yeah, if, if, if you assume this typical aging curve that will land at about, will peak at about the same age for most players, then, then yeah, Opelka has a big head start. Maybe he will land even higher. What I wonder about, I forget whether we discussed this on the podcast or not after that Australian Open match is at least some of Isner's success has to be put down to his mental, I'm not sure what the right word is, stability or unruffledness or something. Like the fact that he he's able to keep calm playing this very unique brand of tennis. He he wins tons of tie breaks even more than we'd expect from him based on his overall match stats. And it's stuff like that that I think takes you from being number 18 in the world to number 8, as Isner has done. And I don't know, did did you get any sense from watching Opelka whether, at least so far, he has that same sort of mental consistency or, or, or ability to stay focused when playing this this sort of one-and-done style of tennis? Well, again, anytime you're considering a guy right after he won a tournament, these indicators are going to look good. Um, you know, in the first round, he had to win a second set tiebreak to stay in the match against Manorino. He had to do it again in the second round against Istomin. Those were both very close matches uh, where he barely won more return points than his opponent you know against Isner he had to do it again and that was a 16-14 tiebreaker and we we talked about the Australian Open match they played and and how close that was so certainly he he can do it he has that can he do it consistently at bigger tournaments like Isner has and and really rack up points um yeah I mean definitely that's an open question um you know, one th- one thing I, I did want to just look up because we were talking about it. It looks like Isner played his first ATP match in um, July 2007, so he was 22. So Opelka is younger than Isner. Opelka now, having just won his first title, is younger than Isner was when he won his first match at tour level. That's interesting. It, it, it does leave us to wonder what Isner would have done had he not gone to college because he was, I think he won national championships as a collegiate uh, so if he had gone pro at 18 or 19, then maybe he would have won a 250 by the same age. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's impressive that Opelka is at minimum. I mean, even if, even if we take the, the, the skeptical angle, he's at minimum playing as well as Isner was at that time. Um, one more note on Opelka. This just popped up on, on my Twitter timeline. So Kaspar Rude, who, um, most of you probably know on the fringes of the top 100 Norwegian prospect uh, just qualified for the 500 event in Rio this week. Uh, he tweeted last night that last in, in, in October last year, Opelka told him he didn't understand why people would play ATP tour events. He thought it was better or smarter to play challenger events when it comes to ATP points. And Casper wonders if he'd say the same thing today. And I'm sure Opelka wouldn't, but I've always my rule of thumb has always been that players should enter the 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 best or the the highest point total tournaments that they can unless they can get seeds at the lower tournaments and not the higher tournaments. Um, so basically, you should enter the the toughest tournaments you can, and most players seem to follow that rule of thumb. Opelka apparently has has voiced a theory to the contrary, given that he does have such a unique style and. 
in this in this case, like you point out, a lot of these matches were 50-50 propositions. They could have pretty easily gone the other way. Can you think of any any reason why that might be true? Whether Opelka really would be better served playing challengers instead of 250s? Well, this is also Opelka of October 2018. He was a different person, different place in his career. Uh, and he was getting seeds at challengers at that point. So it wasn't such a bad a bad move. I mean, if you look at his activity, basically from April last year to the end of the year, he went from the 200s in the rankings to near the top 100, basically only playing challengers and playing them well. And I mean, making two semis in, in, on clay before going to Bordeaux and playing on clay and, and winning the title there and then playing in various challengers around the U.S. on hard courts and winning them or making finals. I mean, he, he really uh, got to the New York Open. He probably could have gotten a wild card, so it's a funny example. But he came into the New York Open with a lot of wins under his belt and a lot of confidence and a good ranking that could get him into a lot of 250s and, and even slam main draws, um, playing a whole hell of a lot of challengers last year, a lot of them as a seed. Yeah, I wonder if maybe the comparison that Opelka was thinking was what he was facing in 2018. Like you point out, his his ranking has not been as high as it is now for long. Uh, well, certainly not as high as it is today, but even coming into the New York Open, it wasn't that high for long. So he spent most of the time well outside the top 100. So the decision he's facing isn't between playing a challenger or playing the New York Open. It's playing a challenger or playing New York Open qualies. And in terms of points, that's a, a totally different proposition. Uh, so maybe maybe it's it's someone like Casper who's who's playing um, who's playing the qualifying in this South American clay court swing who could use that advice more than Riley Opelka right now because Casper lost his first qualifying round in Cordoba and Buenos Aires. Finally came through qualifying in Rio, but unless he has a really good week in Rio de Janeiro he's going to have three weeks in South America and not a lot to show for it. Uh, had he played clay court challengers, I don't even know for sure whether those exist right now, but in theory, if he'd played three weeks of clay court challengers, he may well have ended up with more points and maybe even more money. And if those tournaments had been in, in Europe, he might've even spent less on, on transportation and so on. So, so yeah, if you're making the comparison with, with qualifying, I think it's a really strong argument. Um, so one last question about Opelka. I, I ran my, I updated my ELO results, and I think I saw he's at number 43 now after winning this tournament. Probably a little bit higher if you look at hardcourt specific ELO ratings. But what's your gut on that, Carl? Do you think that, that Opelka deserves to be considered the 43rd best player in the world right now? It's always easier to answer if you can give me some surrounding names. Hmm. Do I have? If that's not at hand, yeah, that's not at hand. I will just uh, just make something up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it feels fine. Like I I had not realized until this conversation just how good he was at challengers last year, and combine that with some good wins to start this year at the at tour level, and is you know some pretty good names, including a top ten player in Isner at the New York Open, I think it sounds reasonable. I mean, he's beaten Isner twice this year and two wins against a top 10 player will tend to boost your ELO. I think Isner isn't quite in the top 10 in your ELO. Yeah, let's like see. I have it open now. He is 
Oh, he's fallen. He's all the way down to 24. Um, but he's had a pretty rough several months. Uh, these were his first uh, consecutive wins in, in several tournaments. So, okay, I, I've got this handy. Let me give you 40 through 47. And I was right. Opelka's 43. So 40 is John Millman. 41 is Martin Clazan. 42 is David Ferrer. 43 is Opelka. 44 is Pierre Ugerbert. 45 is Matteo Berrettini, 46 Feliciano Lopez, and 47, surprise, surprise, is Francis Tiafo. So in that group of eight players, does, do, do you think Opelka belongs? Yeah, it's a, it's a quirky bunch. And I think <laughs> yeah, he, he belongs as much as anyone. Okay. Um, so we have to go pretty far down this list, all the way into the 90s, to get to the guy Opelka beat in the final, Braden Schnurr. Um, Schnur is he would have been considered a much longer shot going into the tournament than Opelka Um, he's two years older um, 23 and a half and he'd never won an ATP tour level match before so there's an interesting I was cheering for him in the final if only for trivia purposes because last week we didn't mention this in last week's podcast but, but last week's big result was Juan Ignacio Londero who won his first ATP tour level match in Cordoba and then went on to win the tournament. And it's only happened a handful of times. I, I wrote about some of the trivia and some of the results in the past on the tennis abstract blog, but it's only happened, I don't know, a half dozen times in 30 years or something like that. And Schnur was one tie break away from, from making it happen, going the distance with Opelka yesterday. Um, like I said, Schnur is, he hasn't accomplished as much in his career so far. I'm not even sure whether he's won a challenger title. I know he's made a couple finals. Um, but he's got four tour-level wins now. He's in the top, top 100 in ELO. He's in the top 110 in ATP ranking. So pretty good career high for, for him. I, I'm guessing most of our listeners, like myself, have never... Well, I guess I, saw, I watched him play a challenger match, but have not really seen him play, not familiar with his game. What can you tell us about Braden Schnur, Carl? Uh, first of all, I like to always remind people about these unlikely runs, at least when it's true, that there is a bit of randomness or flukiness or even luck to, to making it to the final in the way he did. Like he had to win a third set tiebreaker against Steve Johnson and Johnson was the more dominant player according to percentage of return points one and he saved five set points in the first set against query in the semis and again query was the better player by return points one so certainly his run could have ended sooner but because it didn't i got to see a bunch of him and yeah i'm impressed i mean he's he's got a really good all-court game he came to net a lot and showed a lot of confidence there uh, I think a few of the set points he saved against Query were at net. He, he's he got a big serve. I mean, the stats show that lots of people had big serves at the New York Open, so it's a little hard to be sure if if that's just because big servers went there or if the if the courts are fast, and I think you'll be able to report on that soon. Um, but he certainly put up big numbers in the serving department and, and held comfortably, including all 18 of his service games against the fearsome Paolo Lorenzi in the quarterfinals. Uh, the the New York Open media folks sent around a nice sort of chronology of Schnur's week in his, his road to the final. And 
it just kind of drives home how tough it is for someone who comes through qualifying like he did, including, you know, going to sleep at 3.30 one night before having to come back and play three three tough sets the next day. Uh, so, again, the more you, you saw a guy, the more he likely was having the tournament of his life, the more your perception of him might be skewed because of that. But I was... I was impressed and think he's going to win his next tour level match in not too long. Okay. Well, certainly he'll have more chances because now that he's in the top 110, he'll get some direct entries into 250s. And that's something that he's, as far as I know, never gotten before, probably never gotten before. Um, yeah, you mentioned this, the surface speed. We talked about this a little bit via email. So this is not a, a, a pure un, uh, unconsidered opinion, but in person, did you think the surface was particularly fast? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I felt the the skew to my bias, the skew to my perception because of watching Opelka and Isner and Query and, and other players who I know just can make lots of surfaces look fast. Um, so I was trying to fight that. I You know, I, I think... The, Another indicator that's harder to see in the data, but you can see with your eyes, is like, are pe- people coming to net and is that effective? Because if it if the ball is bouncing low, it's it's a great place to volley, and it did seem like people were were doing that a lot. Although again, some of these are people who probably do it on clay. One sort of counter indicator is there were a lot of really great rallies in doubles, and a really fast surface in men's doubles can create very few long rallies yeah good segue i want to come back to that in a minute um before we we start talking doubles um i i looked up my numbers from last year i haven't run my surface speed algorithm on this year's results yet but from from last year uh the new york open was it had seven percent more aces than average which is actually maybe a little below average for a hard court um it's slower than rotterdam which is not a particularly fast indoor hard court so it really could go either way. I mean, it's it's really tough to make these judgments watching on streams or on TV, which is why I, I always like to get the the firsthand opinions. Because on on a stream, it depends so much on camera placement. Because when you have a really high camera angle, it it makes the court look small and it makes the ball look slow. Um, it even affects your perception of the angle balls are bouncing. So it's a really tough judgment to make. Um, but you're right. I I, I watched the. I think it was the first round, maybe it was second round match between Lorenzi and Ryan Harrison. And it, it had points on both sides of your argument, Carl, that Lorenzi was coming to net a lot, which is not something I think you see that much. He was, it was really funny in the first set because he was trying to serve and volley a lot, but always missed his serve. Uh, I think he, he missed a lot of serves. He had a couple lets. And I, despite a lot of attempts, he didn't actually execute a serve and volley point until the second set. Um, but when he wasn't doing that or when he was on the return, there were a lot of long, drawn-out, kind of cagey rallies that you wouldn't expect to see on a fast indoor hard court. Uh, but I'll be curious to see what, what the numbers tell us because, as you point out, when you have a lot of matches with Opelka and Isner and Query, then... Every surface looks fast. You're going to get a lot of aces and a lot of short points no matter what. So I tried doing a, a very low, uh, a very unimpressive fast check of comparison of last year and this year in court speed. 
and just checking a few players who played both times. And it, Query had a big bump in ace percentage. Karlovic had a small bump. Isner was about the same. So maybe we'll see a slightly faster uh, tournament this year. I, the The organizers were touting it as a fast event, but it may just be that they are in the U.S. and got a lot of hard-serving Americans to play. Yeah, uh, and that's a, a research topic that we've talked about before. I would I would love to see somebody tackle it, or maybe I'll eventually get around to it, is to get a sense of how well players sort themselves out. Because if you look at the, the group of players who are in the U.S. right now playing New York and Delray against the ones who are, are in Europe and the ones who are in South America... Like it's a it's a really good sort of self-organization of the players on tour. I mean, almost all the big servers are in the U.S. That's partly because there's so many American big servers who are choosing to play their home court tournaments. But then you have hardcore players who aren't as one-dimensional in Europe, and then you have the clay court guys in South America. And aside from the oddballs like Paulo Lorenzi, who's in the U.S. probably because he could just get into tournaments there... Uh, like there, there aren't a lot of exceptions. Like the, it, it, it's, it's almost like these guys all got together and they, they decided who fit in which group, and then they, you know, just dis, they dispersed onto various continents. Um, but obviously, that isn't what they did. So it's interesting to watch that happen in a more decentralized way. Yeah, and there's, there's the, the footnote research question of do big servers necessarily do better on fast courts? They seem to gravitate toward them. It's great to put up big aces, but we've talked about how someone like Isner, someone like Isner, there aren't that many people like Isner. Well, now there's Isner, one more. <laughs> Isner, Karlovic, Opelka can hold serve comfortably on a slow clay court and maybe have a better chance to break. And both sides of the game are important. So wonder about that too. Yeah, that's I, I'm I'm thinking a lot about how to how to structure this research project exactly, but I've noticed that court speed is one of those analytical topics that people care about a lot, even if they're not generally that interested in analytical topics. Like of the random things that show up in my Twitter mentions, surface speed is probably half of the of the things people are are exploring. And yeah, you you've asked this question before is we just kind of assume that fast courts work to the advantage of players with these big games. And part of that's because most people care about the big four. And, you know, if you're Federer and Nadal, you know which surface you want to be on. But for other players, like you point out, I'm not so sure that's true. So it would it, it would be pretty complicated to, to set up the study to get a sense of, of how much surface speed influences results because just to even start doing it, you, you need to have... A, you need to have a number for every player giving you an idea of what their court preferences are. And to do that, you have to have a reliable notion of surface speed for every match. And maybe we have that, but it, it, it's complicated. I mean, it, it, it's like people are jumping straight to step seven when I'm not sure we even know how to get to step two. So lots of question marks still there. Um, yeah, I think I would start by trying to look only at hard courts because i think if you get into clay and grass you're talking about other things besides speed yeah definitely and I, I, I yeah i totally agree that you need to do that within within surfaces at least to start with and, and there is a huge variety in speed on clay courts as well uh even if you take away the the weird american hard true clay even some of the indoor clay is really fast um 
some, a couple tournaments are particularly slow, like Monte Carlo always comes out as being a really slow clay tournament. So I'm not sure whether there's as much variation among grass, but every surface has their variation that, at least in theory, is benefiting certain players over others, but maybe not in the way that we assume. So to continue our focus on the New York Open, Carl, you got to see some doubles. You got to talk to these these doubles guys. Uh, I wrote something on the blog this past week that the title was, Is Doubles as Entertaining as We Think? And I think this is another common assumption that doubles is super entertaining. We always have these highlight reel 12-shot rallies with everybody at the net and behind the back half volleys and all, all this wild stuff happening. And when you actually sit and watch an entire doubles match sometimes, you get a lot of unreturned serves and you spend most of your time watching players just conference with each other before deciding where to serve or where to return on every point. So I wonder sometimes if people don't watch doubles because doubles actually is kind of boring. Um, I dug into the numbers from the Australian Open and found that the points aren't particularly short. Men's doubles points are pretty short, but women's doubles points are are a little bit longer, I think it was, than, than women's singles points. And a lot of those points are third shot winners, like sort of net poacher winners, that kind of stuff. So it isn't that there's this this enormous percentage of unreturned serves that you don't get in singles. And I know, Carl, we talked about this before this last weekend and you'd read my article. Um, so presumably you had this in mind a little bit watching some doubles matches this weekend in Uniondale. What do you think? I mean, was it entertaining to watch these doubles matches on a super fast hard court? If it was super fast, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess um, I, I've just made the counter argument, but on, on this not slow hard court with not big slow. serving players. Yeah, well, so the 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 team that won was big serving, but you know, it wasn't like lots of aces um, serving a lot of first serves in the low one twenties. And, you know, the teams they were playing in the in the semis and, and final were similar. So we had a lot of chances for returns to happen, at least. The, the short answer is yes, it was entertaining, very entertaining. Um, I, I think it also struck me watching something that I guess is somewhat self-evident that rally length is maybe the best proxy we have for what we're trying to get at, but can't capture like a Qureshi one-handed backhand return winner. I mean, that's a two-shot rally and the crowd Udenad. Uh There were several third-shot volley putaways that were just exquisite in like how finely cut they were, how close to the sideline, how much spin they had. Just, you know, the, the other team wouldn't have gotten them in the first eight bounces. Incredible volleys. Um, so That would be a good Hawkeye-based metric is to to take a drop volley or other kind of winner and or, or a drop shot and and calculate how many bounces it would have taken before the player yeah. would have gotten there. So that if the guy had really been going for it. And you know, especially if you can get to infinite bounces if, when it just stops. <laughs> yeah. Um and there I can think of a bunch of longer rallies that were terrific. There when the winners uh Meese and Kravitz, I think you say. Um, you called them that those guys earlier. We're just there's so many names that of, that we're not familiar with that we try to pronounce on the show. The Germans, we, the, the German team. Um, they in the final when they broke in the first set, Mies hit two straight on two consecutive points. Mies hit big forehand 
swinging volleys, one of them from near the baseline from a defensive position, that won the points and led to the break and eventually to the set and then to the match. Um, both of those rallies and both of those volleys were, were just like such rare things that you see and such an incredible skill to pull off. And then you did have a few of just the outright 10, 12 shot lots of ridiculous reflex volleys, lots of entertaining moments, um, kind of rallies. You know, I think one of the, one of the things that you could ask the question of is like, is tennis as entertaining as we think it is? (laughs) Like you reduce any match to its highlights and it will look a hell of a lot more entertaining per second than the match itself probably was. And some people, I think, only get doubles through those occasional tweeted gifs of the, the absolute best points, and they're the best points. They don't come around that much, but there are a lot of great ones in between. Yeah, one thing, I think you've made this point before, that that one of the reasons that so many people are attracted to doubles, or maybe there's this perception that doubles should be bigger, is that doubles is what most casual tennis players often play. So maybe 95% of TV broadcasts are singles over doubles. Maybe it's 99%. I don't know, but it's a lot. But if you look at what people are really playing on a public park tennis court or something, or what they're playing in USTA leagues, it's a lot of doubles. And I wonder about that too sometimes, that if if, if you're thinking about players like us, like maybe 3.5 level level players who, who get their share of doubles in, uh, I mean, do you think this is even the same sport? Do you think that a, a 3.5 level league doubles player who goes to watch the New York Open final, are they seeing stuff that they can apply to their own game? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've really come around to thinking that for singles too, that for for a reason that I, I can't quite explain and would need to study more, because your level and your opponent's level is similar, even if the actual level is much different than the tennis you're watching, so much of the tactics translate so well. Uh, a very simple example with with doubles is just the movement especially at net that if like when when i play and and an opponent is really tough it's so often because of their timing and movement at net and not being able to read it and even if you can read it they've timed it so you can't adjust your shot by that point or if you do try to adjust it it usually goes haywire so you know i think that's that's the same like idea and the same goal even though they're so much faster and so much better and so much more successful when they do actually get their racket on the ball because of their movement at the net. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so we spent most of our show on the New York Open. I have a couple other things I want to touch on, but most of them are related to the other ATP 250 in Buenos Aires. But before we dive into that, I, I just wanted to do a quick plug for one thing which is the the most recent blog post on the tennis abstract blog is is called around the net issue one and thanks to sort of a nudge from carl the idea is to provide a clearinghouse for everything going on in tennis analytics this feels like i'm delivering an ad and i'm not really we don't make any money from this whatsoever so uh and if if we did it would be me paying myself in this point so it's not an ad um but the idea is that there's there's not a ton of tennis analytics out there, but I feel like even what there is, is a lot of it gets missed. 
Um, a lot of times it's, it's someone who's a fan or a, an analyst of another sport who doesn't really engage with the tennis community or an academic who, who happens to do one big tennis project like Simon Denman, who was on a recent 30 Love episode. So my goal is, A, to get all that in one place. So those of you who are interested in tennis analytics are more likely to find it. And the second goal there is by having this one place, hopefully it will encourage more work in general. So I hope you'll check out that that post and the, the future ones, which may come as frequently as every week. And if you see stuff, whether it's um, academic papers or blog posts or whatever, even things that are not tennis related that you think would be of interest to analytical tennis fans, um, let us know about it. We'd like to, to make this fairly inclusive and, and really reflective of all the good work that's going on out there. Um. Jeff, one note that's related to that, yeah. and also the New York Open, they're now using Fox 10. Maybe they were last year, and I I forgot. But uh, I'll be interested in the years ahead in whether analysts in tennis uh, writing things that get rounded up in the around the net roundup end up getting more access to Fox 10 data than they have to Hawkeye data and what they do with it. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, I uh, I don't love Fox 10, and I have one single self self-interested reason for that it just feels like it takes twice as long to generate the replay and and resolve a challenge with fox 10 than with hawkeye and i the waiting just kills me i know it's just 10 or 15 extra seconds but it, it for i find it really irritating but i'm assuming they'll sort that out but one cool thing is in the broadcasts there's usually more fox 10 data than there is hawkeye data in analogous streams and it seems like maybe Fox 10 is just automatically generating some reports like average topspin or net clearance and that kind of thing. And that's certainly an improvement, at least for someone like me. But you're right as well that maybe it will it will be another source that can get some, get some more data out there. I'd love to see a, a reporter, if any reporters are listening, dig into like what Fox 10 offers that maybe Hawkeye doesn't or how the cost structure works for tournaments, like why it is that there's now a competitor that's, that's eating into to Hawkeye's business and why a tournament might choose one over the other. Uh, I think there's lots of interesting stuff there, but I don't know anything about it. So I'd love to read more. Um, so as promised, there's a couple of things I want to talk about from, from Buenos Aires in, in this tournament. Um, uh, the final was was kind of anticlimactic, but it was won by Marco Cecchinato, who many of you probably remember as our surprise semifinalist and Novak Djokovic defeater from last year's French Open. He won the final, giving up, I think, only three games against Igor Schwartzman. Uh, the match of the tournament was Schwartzman against team in a third set tiebreak in the semifinal. And I want to get to that in a second, but I want to start with Cecchinato. Um Carl, we, this is another thing that comes up occasionally on the podcast. I think you kind of like players who have these surprise runs and, uh, I don't know, have high ranks relative to their usual performance or it, maybe like the Tennis Sandgrins of the world who get to, got to the quarterfinals of the Australian Open last year. Uh, and, and let's just start with this. I, I, am I right about that? Do you kind of have a soft spot for, this, soft spot for these players who have one good run? Um on top of what might be otherwise kind of a pedestrian season? Uh, I don't think I become 
instant fans of them as players. I, I think I like the statistical anomaly of it and just the surprise of it. I, I like, I guess I like my tennis with guys like that in the later rounds more than the some of the slam seasons where the big four were pretty much all or three or four guaranteed to go to the semis of slams. Um, I also think there's I, I'm attracted to the possibility that some players are actually able to deliberately do that, deliberately bunch results, deliberately rise to the occasion. I talked to Tennis Sangren a little about that at the New York Open, and he said he's always kind of been a momentum player, and if he's done well at the start of a tournament, then he's got a good chance to go deep, but he often loses the first match. Um, and I think last year was particularly interesting from that perspective because you had Sandgren and Cecchinato at the French Open and Millman at the U.S. Open, all guys who are kind of journeymen, not not youngsters breaking through, but more mid-career players having by far their best results. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's fun. I, I also have a soft spot for Cecchinato because I met him at a challenger in 2013 for a story I was doing at the time. So I feel like I, I, I have that connection to him when I interviewed him for the story. And I also like the as a one-handed backhand. And I also like something I think we're also going to talk about, which is his extreme surface preference, because all of these kind of statistical anomalies make the game uh, interesting and less homogenous. Yeah, definitely. He's, and one thing that interests me about Chekinato is that he he hadn't accomplished much before that Roland Garros semifinal. Uh, it was, there were so many firsts and oddities that... Petr Vets put together a blog post for the Tennis Abstract blog just on all of those oddities of Czech and Otto's run at last year's French Open. Uh, since then, he, he's done a lot of interesting things. One, that this was in the notes for previous podcasts, but didn't make it in on air, I don't think, that a lot of guys, when they, a lot of clay court guys, when they do get their ranking up, They'll they'll hesitate to play a full schedule. That they maybe will go play some clay court challengers instead of playing the Asian hardcore swing. But Chekinato didn't do that. He's played a pretty full schedule on all surfaces. He won a couple matches in Shanghai, I think it was not very convincingly, but he did win them. So he still looks like a, a pretty clay focused guy, but he's at least giving it a shot, which is something you can't say for everyone in in his category. But he's won two titles now. Uh, with uh, on the back of his Roland Garros run, uh, in part because of it, because he came into this tournament in Buenos Aires as the number two seed, I think, got a first round bye, so he only, only had to win four matches. But he did it really convincingly, including the loss of only three games in the final. Um, my Elo through this last match yesterday says he's 14th on tour on clay, uh, which means you're pretty much talking about the, the usual big names. And then him, in, echoing my question about Opelka earlier, does that feel right to you, Carl, that Cecchinato is the 14th best guy in the world right now on a clay court? Yeah, I mean, he's 21-9 and nine at tour level on clay in the last 52 weeks, and that's really good. There probably aren't more than 13 guys who, who have a record better than that. Some of them... A lot of those wins are at smaller tournaments, but still, you know, beating Schwartzman on clay six one six two is a is a really good result. Um, yeah, I I think it's you know there aren't my guess is there aren't 
too many guys in the top 20 on clay who are ranked as low as Chequinado is on the other surfaces. And we don't have as many surface specialists as we used to. Uh, I know that's not necessarily because the courts are all converging. Um, and maybe I'm not right, and maybe there never were as many surface specialists as we're told there were. But in any case, there aren't a lot of them. And it's I think it's it's fun to have one, especially one who's trying to not be a surface specialist. He's trying to get better. I mean, he played two tournaments leading up to the Australian Open, and a lot of guys play one or only play exhibitions. Uh, actually made the semis in Doha, which is a really good result. My favorite is that last year, between Shanghai and Paris, the two masters after the U.S. Open, he played Moscow and Basel, and he didn't win a set or come close to it. He actually won, let's see, 6% of first serve return points against the fearsome Adrian Manorino in his loss <laughs> in Moscow. So he's clearly got work to do off of clay, but he's doing the work, and, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, one thing, I, I hadn't realized this before, but I watched two of his matches from Buenos Aires. He really likes the tactic of of a serve plus one drop shot. So he hits a big wide serve, gets the, the returner out of position, and then he has a very good drop shot. So he throws that in, and it doesn't always work. Of course, you're not always going to make the shot. Even if you do, it might not be perfect. You, the other guy, especially if they're as fast as Diego, might run it down and hit a winner. But I mean, just anecdotally, it looked like he was working a lot more than not. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that tactic? Do you think that do you think that maybe players could use it more on a clay court, especially on a slow one? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think guys stand so far back to return, which then, you know, so that gives you one dimension of distance from the net. And then they also, because of that, can be stretched really far wide because they can't cut off angles. I I do think so much of it is in the execution. I mean, it's so sad to watch players who who know that a drop shot is a reasonable option in a given moment try it and then you realize oh they can't act they don't have a drop shot they can't hit now you know sometimes even players with great drop shots hit bad ones so it's um it's not always the case that they don't have one but sometimes you've seen that player try it a few times and realize okay that's that's what they mean when they say they should leave that shot in the bag um whereas Chegonato can hit them from positions that are probably below 50 50 for the average player because he's got such a good one yeah um that's an, another research topic I need to go back to. When the match charting project was very, very young, I, I took a first look at drop shot percentages. And from the very small amount of data I had at that point, I, I found that drop shots were not very successful. And generally, you assume that players are hitting them from relatively offensive positions. So you would expect players to win quite a high percentage of, of points in which they play a drop shot. And that was not the case it's evened out more over the years, but it's it's a more complicated subject subject than just looking at at the percentage of points where a, in which a drop shot is played that the player goes on to win. And you have to look at so much more like when it happens. Like obviously, a, a serve plus one drop shot is very different than a drop shot on the eleventh shot of the rally. Um, so that's a maybe aspirational more than realistic for me in the in the near term, but. Um, definitely something that that I or someone else should look at. You mentioned Carl the the ability to to take a player off court on, in two dimensions, both players returning from a really deep position but also the the ability to push them wide. 
And that was one of the more compelling things for me about the the Schwartzman semifinal against Dominic Team. If you haven't watched it, anybody, you should definitely go on tennis TV, watch the stream, really entertaining match, really high quality for most of the match. Um, Schwartzman ended up winning in, in a tie break in the third set. But what interested me the most was Dominic Team was very often taking a wide position on his ad court serve. So standing almost in the doubles alley, like, like a double serve. And I mean, some of the angles he could generate hitting hitting all the way across court, hitting a wide serve from there. I mean, he almost pushed Schwartzman into the crowd. Um, and he tried a lot of those plus one drop shots. It was not nearly as effective as as Chekanato was with the drop shot, including some, some real clunkers. But even just how impressive it was that he could do it, that, you know, he could, he could push Schwartzman so far off court. It was entertaining to watch. And, and just like the serve plus one drop shot tactic... It's something you don't see very often. I mean, Daniel Medvedev has brought it back a little bit on hard courts. Pablo Cuevas does it pretty regularly, but I can't think of a lot of other players who who have it as a regular part of their toolkit. I mean, I think I know what your answer to this will be, Carl. But do you think this is another tactic that players should use more? Now I'm fearing that I'm too predictable. Uh, first, I'm wondering, like, is this? righties realizing that they can do some of what lefties do? Because this isn't that unusual for lefties, right? The, the the direction of the serve isn't unusual, but do lefties do lefties stand really wide, almost like a double serve that often? I Well, okay, so I think Manorino does it. Oh, um, yeah, you're right. He does occasionally. Maybe Manorino is unusual, and I'm just thinking, oh, lefties must do that because it seems like an obvious thing for a lefty to do. Um I had on my 30 Love podcast, Marty Smith, who's a coach and has written a book about tennis shots and tennis tactics. And he um, he talks about like a right handed making a right handed serve in the ad court, almost like a left handed serve with the grip and, and the follow through. And that's that's partly what this makes me think of, like the le- lefties have made so much money and won so many titles over the years by driving right-handed returners way out into into the corners with their serve and it just makes a lot a lot of right-handed servers like sangha comes to mind as someone who has a great ad court serve per your data um there's there's just like so so much that you gain from from pushing your opponent wide as well as deep on the on that first shot so that even if the ball comes back they're in such a bad position after it like with the drop shot question maybe this is where i'm predictable you do have to actually be good at the serve. You do have to you do have to execute it, and probably not everyone can can execute it in the way it needs to be. But uh, no, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it was interesting to watch as the match progressed because I mean, team was doing it occasionally throughout, but I I knew it was it was getting interesting early on, so I started tracking which which points he did it. So. Hopefully I'll have a blog post coming this week where I'll dig into those numbers and see how successful he was in various ways. But he did do it more and more throughout the match, including all three of his ad court surf points in the final set tiebreak. And what struck me is, this is something we talked about last week, um, that when players are deciding whether to serve down the tee or serve wide, they're, they're going to balance that to, to optimize for total points one. And if you're going to choose to serve wide... You have another thing to optimize for. A, you want to optimize your serve stance in the first place. Like you shouldn't go, you shouldn't stand in an, in a doubles position 
too often if it's not working. But then even within those doubles like serves, you need to balance your ad serve, your your wide serves with your T serves. And the, the goal is to get them so you hit enough T serves that, that players can't camp out really, really wide expecting the wide serve. But because that serve is so effective just because of the angle it generates, you almost don't have to do that. Like I think in the entire match, I'll, I'll bet team hit at least 20 of those serves and only two of them, I think, were, were down the tee. I've seen Pablo Cuevas do that for entire matches where he hits maybe a couple times down the tee, just barely enough to keep an opponent honest. And I guess that's what's interesting about it. It's a, a tactic that even if your opponent knows it's coming is still deadly especially if you've got a better drop shot than Dominic team to back it up with. It makes me wonder. So yeah, on clay, it seems like the risk of being exposed down the line is somewhat mitigated because it's clay. So you have more time to get to the ball. Your opponent is further back. Do, do any of these guys do it on second serve too, where they can hit a lot of kick and, and maybe get a similar positional result? I've seen it. Team wasn't doing it, um, and I, I think they 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 do it a fair amount. Like they they get the kick going out wide, but they don't not as often pair that with the serve position itself. Yeah, maybe that's something worth tinkering with. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I hope we'll have. I mean, Team and Schwartzman were both winning like thirty something percent of second serve points, so they, they, they there's probably a lot they could have tinkered with there. Yeah. No question. Uh, yeah, it was a fascinating match in, in a lot of ways. Um, so we are quickly coming up on the hour mark. It's probably a good note to end on. Um, Carl, as usual, thank you for joining me and sharing your thoughts from Uniondale. Thanks, Jeff. Um, feel free to write off any of your travel expenses going out to Long Island against your 30 your uh, tennis abstract podcast salary or your 30 love podcast salary i know both are are ample so everyone out there thank you for listening this has been episode 49 of the tennis abstract podcast i'm guessing in some form or other we'll be back about a week from now so we hope to see you then